Welcome to Science Fiction 101, the podcast series where we look at the science fiction field from all angles. I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And today is the 23rd of March, 2023. We've been going for just over two years now, Colin. Wow. That's fun. <laughs> Are you exhausted yet? <laughs> no. No. Good. Ready to keep going. Good, good. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at our favourite science fiction movies, which surprisingly is a topic we haven't directly tackled until now. We also have a quiz coming up, which was sent in by one of our listeners, and we have our usual roundup of recommendations of past, present and future science fiction. First of all, though, a bit of feedback on our last episode, which was all about Tintin. One is from someone called Bob on Facebook, who said, I was never impressed with Tintin. So, fair enough. Uh, I think the French expression is chacun à son goût, each to his own. Uh, but also on Facebook, Andy said, uh, my partner is very happy with one out of the three of you and your pronunciation of Tintin. Brackets, she is half French. Now I'm guessing <laughs> that Andy's partner liked our native French speaker's pronunciation of Tintin and was not too keen on the way we said it. But uh, anyway, Andy goes on to say, Brilliant episode. Great to have you back in my ears after binging all the back episodes through January. And uh, in fact, we're going to hear more from Andy later in the show because he sent us a quiz. If you'd like to comment on the show or challenge us to a quiz, check out our blog on 101sf.blogspot.com or you can find us as Science Fiction 101 on Facebook. Now, favourite science fiction films. Colin, we, we discussed doing this as a topic, but we didn't discuss criteria. I went down a rabbit trail on this where I thought I should really be picking like the best science fiction films, mm -hmm. the, the most, you know, out there, high concept. And then I decided, no, 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 this should just be the movies that I really enjoy watching or that yeah. I own. Yeah. That's, that's the path that I took. And turns out I apparently like a lot of science fiction movies because I started writing down everyone I could think of. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've got 17, 18, 19 <laughs> of them. And I, I have them all ranked. Oh, good. Uh, the ranking might change over time, but yeah. I think these are, you know, at, at least my top five and top 10, I think are pretty solid. Very good. I was feeling a bit ashamed because my top 10 has 11 films in it. But I'm glad to hear that your your top 10 has got 17. <laughs> now, I, I did the same as you. I thought this is going to be my personal favourites rather than listing the best or recommending films to people. I thought really the most honest thing to do is to just say which films I enjoy watching. And I use that kind of desert island concept. You know, if I were marooned on a desert island, which science fiction films would I like to be marooned with? So it's similar to, to what you were saying, really. One thing I found it very difficult to do, though, is put them in ranking order. I started doing that. But within a minute of writing a list, I changed my mind. Mm -hmm. So I gave up with that in the end. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to list mine in chronological order. Um, shall we mostly concentrate on our top 11, given that I've got 11 and you've got 11 plus? Sure. Pick a film then. Tell us one of the films on your list. Okay. I'm going to start near the bottom of my list, down near, you know, approximately number 10. Okay. Uh, that would be the 2003 movie The Core by John Amiel, starring, starring Aaron Eckhart and Hilary Swank. 
Have you heard of this or seen it? I have seen it. And okay. you, you know what? I've, I'd forgotten it. It seems to be pretty roundly panned, um, but it has one of the best pieces of leadership advice I have ever, ever seen in a movie or, yeah. or really a book. And it's this one scene where Hillary Swank is trying to figure out why she did not become the commander of this mission that's going to go save the Earth. And her mentor, who is the, the leader, um, says, it's because you've never failed. And as a leader, you are not defined by your successes, but in how you handle failure. Right. Yeah, very good. I think we're going to have quite a few um, morals and messages and uh, lessons learned from the films that we're going to discuss. Shall I pick one of mine? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go through mine chronologically, as I said. And I'm going to start with 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still. Now, I, I would have included that in my list anyway, but I'm particularly pleased that it's from 1951 because somebody on Facebook said, I bet Phil chooses something obscure from 1951. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that obscure. You know, it's quite a well-known film. This is the one where um, Klaatu comes to Earth with Gort, the, I suppose he's about a seven-foot robot, and they they come really to teach us earthlings a lesson. And the film has kind of religious parallels. People have, Some people have very specifically uh, tried to parallel the uh, Michael Rennie character with Christ. Now, I'd see some merit in that kind of discussion, but I think it's missing some of the other values that the film has. But nevertheless, it has resonances. It's not just about an alien from space coming to visit us. It actually does have resonances. Um, and I think it's a very economical little film. It's directed by Robert Wise, who also made The Sound of Music and uh, West Side Story and Star Trek The Motion Picture. So he mm -hmm. had a really eclectic filmography. But what he did in the, the day the Earth stood still is mostly kept the camera work very simple. And there are even some scenes where rather than have cutting from two from one camera angle to another, he has the characters kind of physically change places so that we have uh, effectively an over the shoulder shot of each character. But it's done by the actors moving rather than by the camera moving. Uh, so it's a very economical little film. Uh, so my next one would be the movie Soldier, which is made in 1998 by Paul W.S. Anderson and starring Kurt Russell, Jason Scott Lee, Jason Isaacs and Connie Nielsen. Now, I don't know this one. Well, I, I, I've seen posters for it and information and so on, but I've never seen it and I was never drawn to watch it. So tell me what's so good about it. There's something just compelling about the the character that Kurt Russell plays. Now, I have to say that if you are not into military science fiction, this movie is probably not for you. Right. And some of the things that, that happen to the Kurt Russell character are truly horrible. So he's part of a, of a genetically influenced uh, military indoctrination program to create good soldiers. Mm -hmm. And he has a long and storied career. And at some point they develop the next generation of soldiers. And so all the old soldiers are essentially thrown out. And Kurt Russell ends up on this uh, dumping planet where they dump all their garbage. And it turns out there are a bunch of survivors there that are trying to, um, you know, get by and get off the planet. And it's this understanding that for me, it's, it's like the new does not always supersede the old. Very good. Do you recommend it? I do. I do. For me, I think it's more of a fun movie than a, a serious movie, but I still enjoy it. 
It's interesting that so far we haven't had any common films in our two lists. I know we've got a long way to go, but uh, we, we, we have two different lists so far. Um, I, I'm going to guess that this one isn't on your list. Though I don't don't have any reason for for thinking that particularly, I just think the odds are against it. Um, my next one is two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey, which we've talked about on a previous episode. So I won't say a huge amount about it now, except to say that it's a film that I find endlessly fascinating. I usually skip through a large part of the first section where you see the sort of ape men, um, up to the point where the uh, monolith first presents itself to the ape men i'm not that interested in it, in it as a film but after that it absolutely hooks me and every time i think oh, i'm not going to be able to sit through this i find mm-hmm. i am it, it really really works for me and as i say it's endlessly fascinating what's next on your list the movie red planet made in 2000 by Anthony Hoffman and starring Val Kilmer, Carrie Ann Moss and Tom Sizemore. Oh yes. I uh, I love the Val Kilmer character as an engineer. Uh, I I love the the technology. It's like when we were trying to, you know, terraform Mars and it failed and we have to go up and find out why because we needed to save the earth and yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there was this whole set of Mars-based films around that time, and it, it felt like we were having a little Mars resurgence. Yeah. So the other one that came out at that time was Mission to Mars, the Disney movie. Oh, yes. Uh, we're now moving forward 20 years on my list. We've come to 1971 and The Andromeda Strain. And coincidentally... This is also directed by Robert Wise, but that's not why I chose it. Uh, This is the film based on a Michael Crichton novel where there is some strange disease that's, well, basically destroying all life. Uh, So it's a kind of a pandemic movie. In particular, uh, there's a a small town which is affected and uh, scientists have this underground facility where they try to solve the mystery of this um, organism that is so deadly. And it's a fascinating film. It's a a thriller, really, but there's humour in it as well. And I think the film is actually more humorous than the book, and that comes largely from the casting. Um, It's just a very good piece of science fiction. I mean, obviously, some of the science is a little bit... um, bogus because it's Hollywood, but it's really quite convincing and it's a very strong film. The only bit that bothers me every time I watch it is the ending isn't quite good enough as far as I'm concerned. It's one of those things where how on earth are they going to solve this problem? And basically it it kind of has to go away. Um, So the ending isn't quite there as far as I'm concerned, but it's a very good film. Yeah, it's kind of one of those they, they got lucky yeah. Or else. Yeah. Uh, my next movie is The Fifth Element from 1997 <laughs> by Luck Besson, starring yeah. Bruce Willis, Gary Oldman, and Mila, jo- yeah, Mila Jovovich. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I love the special effects. Uh, I-, I dig the alien opera singer. Yeah, that's um, fantastic. <laughs> it's, I kind of like the whole everyman aspect that Bruce Willis plays in that movie in the yeah. middle of the science fiction. Yeah. It is very good, isn't it? But it's for me, it's a film that I've seen too many times, and it, the novelty's worn off. Um, it's I, I always joke that it's 
a film you can always see on British TV. It's on every weekend, usually on the same channel. But ever since the film came out, it's been on TV on a weekly basis. (laughs) So it's not exactly exotic. Um, And every time it comes on and I happen to stumble across it, if it's near that bit where the woman's going to do the opera, then I stay tuned. But uh, (laughs) other than that, I've seen it a few too many times, but it is good. My next one is another one from 1971. And again, there's no significance to that. It just happens to be that. I've chosen Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Now, I haven't chosen any other Apes movie for my list of of favourite films. If I were doing a longer list, then all of the other Planet of the Apes films, with the exception of the Tim Burton one, all of them would be on my list. But since I'm only doing a a top ten... Uh, I've chosen Escape from the Planet of the Apes. And the reason I've chosen that one rather than the original film is that it has everything that the original film has, plus it has more interesting characterization. It is um, an emotional roller coaster. It's a deep, deep tragedy. Uh, it's got the, the most brutal and saddest ending of any film and it's witty and it's amusing. It's as cheap as chips, as we say over here. It, you know, <laughs> it has an incredibly low budget. Uh, Planet of the Apes had dozens of people in prosthetic masks, which took hours to put on. Escape from the Planet of the Apes has, for the most part, just two apes. And they're not even wearing ape costumes most of the time. They're just wearing uh, ordinary human Earth clothes. So it's a very low-budget affair. But uh, I just love everything about it. There's, um, as I said, it's a deeply tragic story uh, of these two rather innocent apes who find that they are a threat to the whole of human civilization, and the female is pregnant. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, what are they going to do? Whatever they do is going to be wrong. And uh, they do what they think is right every step of the way. They get misunderstood. They get misrepresented. And well, spoilers, they don't make it. <laughs> so although the the baby does, that's the um, the setup for the sequel. That's that's. That's coincidental. My next movie also stars Ricardo Montalban. Ah. It's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Hey, we should have a special bell right now. Ding, ding, ding. Because (laughs) I've got that on my list as well. (laughs) Hey. Yeah. um, In in America cinema, this is the the beginning of modern day uh, high value special effects. Right. Um, They're computer generated. They look good. Uh, I still like the look of them today, and maybe that's something wrong with me. But I also love the fact that it continues a story that happened in the original series. Uh, I, I love the development of the relationships between the characters. Yeah, I love Khan trying to get his revenge on Kirk, and that spanning years and years and years. Yeah, yeah, very good, isn't it? And again, really quite a low budget film. It costs something like a quarter of what the previous film cost, you know, the Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, and it was made really, it wasn't made for television, but it was made more or less by the television division of Paramount Pictures because Paramount weren't that confident that it was going to do anything. Um, 
but from that come some really good decisions that I think were probably accidental and the chief one of which is getting Nick Meyer to be the director and accidentally he was the script writer he wasn't brought in to do the script other people had written drafts of the script and none of them quite worked so he took the various drafts home and he started a page one rewrite uncredited and he wrote the script for the film as we see it now and it's it's terrific i what i love is the the little bits of symbolism so um either i can't remember who it is but either um spock or mccoy gives kirk an old book for his birthday yes. and the other one gives him a pair of old spectacles for his birthday and he puts them on and i think kirk says something like meaning spock and spock says none of which i am aware captain um <laughs> but Ah, so much symbolism there. And then when he opens the book, it's a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And it's all about Captain Kirk and all the others feeling old because they're... But my God, look how look how young they were <laughs> when that was made. They would have yeah, been back then. about 50, something like that, each one, each one of those major actors in the film. Um, and I think William Shatner yesterday or today was 92. So... You know, he was feeling old all those years ago. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like how, if I remember right, uh, as the as the Enterprise is, is almost defeated by Khan, uh, Kirk pulls out those glasses and puts them on while yeah. Khan is looking at him, I think, as an as a way to draw him in and make him think that he's weaker than he actually is. Yeah. I think it's he, he has to press a button on the panel, doesn't he? And he takes the glasses out so he can look at the buttons and see which one it is that he has to press. Plus, there's um, all the business with uh, the sacrifice of Spock, which is then totally undermined in the sequel, uh, unfortunately. And it's good to see that it's received more and more critical acclaim with each passing year. Yeah, yeah. Um. So that was on your list, but that was also on my list. Um, so I, I won't repeat that when I get to that point on my list. I'll just go for the next one okay. chronologically on mine. And again, not a huge amount to say because we did a whole episode about it. It's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, it's a film, again, that is a OK. It's about space aliens coming to Earth, but it's not just about that. It's a story about obsession you could see it as a story of religious obsession and it's just very good in all of that and the effects mechanical physical optical effects no computer graphics to be seen and they hold up beautifully so classic movie yeah uh my next one in order of preference uh is star wars in 1977 <laughs> uh you know, I I love the Star Trek and the Star Wars franchises, and it was it was tough to pick a movie, and so I, I thought you know I should go as early as possible because I remember being a kid and loving those things so much, and here right. I am, yes, a whole lot of years later, still <laughs> loving the characters and the universes and the the mythology of the stories. Yeah, and you know everybody I knew wanted to be Luke Skywalker. <laughs> everybody. Well, some people wanted to be Princess Leia. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I wonder how many people wanted to be Darth Vader 
I don't know. There must have been some. Must be. <laughs> and, and maybe Han Solo gets short shrift. I don't know anybody that wanted to be Han Solo. Mm, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's it's a decent enough film, that original Star Wars. Not on my list. Um, if I were to have a Star Wars movie on my list, that would be the one, because you can't beat it. But I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. The, the franchise leaves me cold. I've seen all of the Star Wars films now. Um and I can take them or leave them. You know, from a filmmaking standpoint, I think it makes sense to watch at least the first season of The Mandalorian. Right, yeah. And, and now I haven't seen any of the TV stuff. I've only seen the movies. Yeah, the reason I say that is it is the the first time where they came up with the volume. Right. And what it what it enabled them to do and how it affects the actors and the whole the whole filmmaking aspect of it. Uh, you know, I watch the episodes and then I, you know, I enjoy them. And then I, I think about them and I'm blown away as I think, was that that entire one shot that they did was all made possible by the volume mm-hmm. where they they follow a person into an elevator and the elevator has a transparent background and they're they drop the person down two or three levels and then they come back out onto a different floor. And it's all a one shot. Right. Yeah. But but it was done on a one one story uh filming stage with different camera angles in the same area and it, it blows me away interesting to compare that with uh the phantom menace <laughs> which was the first the first time star uh, star wars came back uh with the prequel movies and the phantom menace there is there are some sequences which okay are full of action but a lot of the phantom menace is just people standing and talking uh, and and it was all shot against a blue screen, and it was the f- really the first attempt to make movies that were entirely filmed against a blue screen. Yeah. Um, my next one, we're still in the seventies on my list. We're at nineteen seventy nine now, and Alien, which I know some people say is a horror movie, but it is. But it's also a science fiction movie, and it's. It's one of those films where I know what's going to happen next. I know the outcome. I know the bits that are supposed to shock me. I know the bits that are supposed to hold me in suspense. And they all work, even though I know what's coming. And that's a sign of really, really good filmmaking. Some films that use shock effects depend upon shock to work because they've got nothing else going for them. But Alien has a lot going for it and uh, very good performances, very good direction of actors, um, visual effects beautifully integrated into the movie to the to the point that you're not really conscious of visual effects being used very much. Um, and again, quite a low-budget movie. And I suspect Alien is the best piece of... Um, th- the best script that Ridley Scott has ever worked from. Yeah, sometimes those are the best. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you like Alien? I do. I, I like Aliens better. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it scares the living daylights out of me. Mm, absolutely. Because I, I remember seeing it as a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, my next movie is a Spielberg piece, E.T. Ah, okay. Um, I eat Reese's Pieces solely because of E.T. <laughs> Do you do all the other things as well? Do you, do you get on a bicycle and fly? 
<laughs> Sometimes I get on a bicycle. I do not fly. <laughs> so what is it about E.T. that works for you? You know, one of the great things I think Spielberg captures in a lot of his movies is this sense of adventure and wonder. Yeah. Um, without be without being saccharine, because you know, there's also sadness and tragedy and stress, and yeah, you, you can go from the the fun time of you know the Halloween episodes to where E.T. and uh, Elliot are bonded, but E.T. is dying. Yeah. And it's just it's a great roller coaster ride from beginning to end. Yeah. Uh, my next one is from 1984, and it's The Terminator. Oh, that's a classic. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'm i not really bothered with the rest of the franchise, the sequels, and the remakes, and the spin-offs, and all of that. None of those really, really interest me. But the original Terminator is a fantastic little movie. Again, a low-budget movie. Um by a director who I think benefited from having a low budget, James Cameron, before he um, started getting these ridiculous um, budgets, you know, for Avatar and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but this was a, a great filmmaker early in his career, working with a very simple premise and doing it very well. The fact that it was borrowed from a Harlan Ellison Outer Limits episode didn't bother me. Uh, in fact, it impressed me that someone had taken a piece of source material and done such beautiful work with it. Um, so, and it remains one of my favourites. When it came out, I remember seeing it in the cinema. I remember seeing it on VHS tape, and I remember having a copy of a copy of the VHS tape, and I just played it endlessly until it was on TV, where I was able to record a, a fresh copy for myself, <laughs> and then I just watched it again and again. So it's one of those films I've watched many, many times and never tire of it. So, yeah, great film. Uh, my next one is also from 1984. It's The Last Starfighter by Nick Castle. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, you know, a lot like, you know, the Star Wars movie. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, we had been playing video games on consoles for about five or six years. Right. And the idea that you could be accepted into Star Command yeah. <laughs> uh, was just awesome. Uh, and again, you know, it's it's one of the beginning uses of, of, science, of uh, CGI graphics. I like the plot. I like the, the casting. I like uh, the humor in it because it's funnier than all get out in some places. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I keep finding myself quoting one part of it at the very end where the alien commander realizes they're going to run into the planet. Well, what are we going to do? And the guy's eyepiece closes over one eye. We die. <laughs> so really, it could have been a predecessor to the Klingons. Oh, yes, very much. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? How many of these films have humor as part of their makeup? And I think that's that's partly what distinguishes lists like these favorite films from lists of best films i think if you were trying to write down the the thing the films you think are best you would probably be looking for for worthy storytelling and the the kind of incidental humor in some of these films wouldn't have much sway but when we're talking about personal films personal favorites there's often humor in there as part of the mix yeah my next one is, I'm leaping forward now to 1993, 
and a film which I remember as being the loudest film I had ever heard up until that point. And it's Jurassic Park. And I think it still holds up remarkably well. Even the visual effects, which are now incredibly dated, Mm -hmm. most of them still work. There's maybe one or two bits where you think, "Mm, they could have done that a little bit better. But for the most part, the animatronic effects that are in there, which people forget, you know, it wasn't all CGI. It was a mixture of CGI and um, puppetry and animatronics. Um, But all of that works. The storytelling is terrific. Mm -hmm. The science fictional business of how you explain DNA to people who don't know what DNA is, all of that is beautifully done with that little animated sequence. Um, And it's, it's a great movie. And it's based on a book, which was also a pretty good book. I think the book feels a bit cheap. It doesn't feel like a serious work of science fiction. Um, but you can absolutely see when you, if you read the book and then watch the film, you can absolutely see how Crichton's novel inspired Spielberg to make a, a really good movie. So yeah. it's one, one of my favorite adaptations, I think. One of the things that I, I use to judge, you know, what I, what I, um, watch, what I do, what I eat is would I, would I do this again? You, know, you can watch something once and enjoy it, but would you watch this again? It's like, no, I've had that experience. I'm done with it. Or, yeah, let's do this again sometime. Yeah. And to me, that's exactly what Jurassic Park falls into. And I think that's what they're trying to do when they keep remaking it and, you know, making sequels and remakes and sequels to remakes. They're trying to just recapture the original. But frankly, I'd rather just watch the same one again and again. There's there's not a lot in all of the others as far as I'm concerned. Um, I quite like The Lost World, which was the second one, I think, um, because it does some things differently to the first film. But I think once you get to number three and beyond, they're just remaking the same basic thing. Yeah. I can't remember which remake it is, which is a sign of how I don't like them that much (laughs) on those sequels. But they finally adapted one of the sequences from the book, which was the pterodactyl exhibit. Okay, so that was in the in the novel, but not used in the first film. Yeah. Wow. My next one is from 1989. It's a James Cameron movie, The Abyss. Okay. And it stars yeah. Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and Michael Bean. Yeah. And I, I, I was struggling to, to figure out you know, why that movie. And it, it is, a lot of it is, if I saw it on TV, I would stop what I'm doing and watch it. Right. Yeah. Uh, I I love the concept, the special effects. It's unique in science fiction in that it's really about uh, an underwater exploration mm. and the the dangers that are going to happen because of what we do. Isn't that the film where they have a little sequence where people have to breathe water? Yes. Yeah. As as part of their underwater mining um, experiments, they're looking at. Uh, hyper oxygenated fluids yeah, for it. deep deep sea manned exploration mm. and and that actually comes around and is used at the very very end to help save the planet right yeah i've seen it a couple of times and never really gone back to it but uh, in in the moment uh, i i remember enjoying that film so I don't know why I've never particularly gone back to it. There was another film, another underwater film, around the same time, which was called Sphere. 
uh, yes. which uh, I think that was a Michael Crichton book, but I don't think that was as good. Um, my next one brings me to 1995, and it's 12 Monkeys, which Ooh. later was developed into a TV series, which is also pretty good. Um, but 12 Monkeys, I I just love. I just find it... Well, again, it's it's got humour. It's got some tragedy to it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's mostly a time travel thing. Uh, and it's all about saving the world, or is it? <laughs> it's you know, the the absolute meaning of the twelve monkeys is is a mystery through the film. Um, but it's got this kind of tragic element to it as well, which is derived from a French short film whose name has just popped out of my head, La Jetée. Uh, so it was inspired by a pre-existing short film, um, and I, I think it holds up quite well. I think the last time I saw it was about two years ago, and it still struck me as being a very good movie. Obviously, everyone in it now looks incredibly young, you know, Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis and all that, uh, compared to the way they are now. Um, but yeah, uh, a great film, and I'd happily watch it again and again. I, I get something new from it every time. Uh, my next movie is Enemy Mine, Ooh. based off the uh, the novel of the same name. Yeah. The, the acting, the the whole bonding over learning each other's language mm -hmm. and overcoming stereotypes about each other and the survival aspect. I love a redemption story. Mm -hmm. And Davich's story is, I feel like, definitely a story of redemption, of being a, a hateful man to a man who is you know respectful of other cultures, who eventually adopts um, his enemy's son to raise him and then risks everything to save him uh, at the very end of the movie. I love a, a blockbuster and a big budget movie, but I think sometimes people overlook what you can do with story. Um, I've just got one left on my list, uh, and it's from 2016, and it's Arrival. What I like about Arrival, well, there's a number of things. It's probably the most believable story of first contact that we uh, are sort of trying to communicate with this alien species and they are so totally alien it's not just a matter of listening to their words and saying oh well we'll just convert one of their words to one of our words oh and we've translated it because that's not how language works mm -hmm. and this is why we cannot talk to dolphins or buffalo or foxes <laughs> they make sounds we make sounds we've no idea what they're on about they don't know what we're on about uh, and that's how it's going to be when we meet some alien race. And Arrival just deals with that in such a realistic way. And on top of that has a, a kind of a character story for the central character, um, which kind of runs in parallel to the main story. And I think that's true of most good films, that you have the thing, the broad thing that the movie is about, so alien contact or whatever it is, and then you have a person who's kind of caught up in everything while trying to deal with their own issues. So I, I think Arrival is, it's the, I know it's seven years old now, but it's the most recent film I can think of that does all of the things that I like to see science fiction doing. Uh, plus it's a, it's a very good visual movie and a very good sound movie. Um, the, the sound design throughout the film is terrific. Yeah. Well, and, 
if I remember right, was that Denis Villeneuve's first big movie that was popular? I think so. It's certainly the one that first brought him to attention and then landed him other things afterwards. Yeah, I don't think it will be the last. No, no. Uh, my favorite movie will not be a surprise to people who um, live in my house because I watch this movie frequently, and it's The Martian <laughs> by Ridley Scott from 2015. Right. Um, yeah, I, lo- I love the novel. I-, I wish I wish I had seen the evolution of the novel from its original blog-based mm-hmm. um, origin uh, all the way up until the novel that was published uh, after the Amazon edition, even just to see how it changed in its various versions over time, yeah. as people handled it. But yeah, and uh, Ridley Scott did a great job adapting it. Absolutely, it's it's one that I considered putting in my list. Uh, in the end, I decided against it simply because I've seen it a number of times. Every time I do get drawn into it, but it it it's kind of stopped giving me anything now. I've seen it enough times that I'm not drawn in so much. Unlike most of the others on my list here, um, I can happily watch them again and I will see things in them that I didn't see the last time I watched them. Uh, I think with The Martian, I've seen it enough now that it's stopped giving me new stuff. Um, But it is a a terrific movie. If I had to choose just one film from this list to be marooned on a desert island with, I'm really, really torn. I think I would probably choose Close Encounters because it's got a bit of everything, including music. Yeah. If I were to choose one, it would definitely have a John Williams soundtrack. (laughs) But even then, I think they would change over time. Um, I, I own 11 of the John Williams soundtracks. I should get some more Indiana Jones just to flesh that out because it's <laughs> the soundtrack is only 45 minutes long. So it's quiz time and we're grateful to listener Andy Parry for this quiz, which he created just for us. And I think there are five questions. Yes, there are five questions. And the way this is structured, each question really comes in the form of a series of clues. And if you get the answer correct from clue one, you get five points. If you get it right from clue two, you get three points and so on down to one point. Okay. I did this same quiz under controlled conditions yesterday and I've already got my score written down and I'm going to expose you to the quiz now, Colin. So um, (laughs) here we go. First of all, question one is name the TV series. Just to be clear, this is one episode of the series. And your first clue is the AI was called Ultra House 3000. Ultra House 3000. No. Okay. Second clue. The main voice actor of Ultra House 3000 was Pierce Brosnan. Television series Ultra House 3000 and... And Ultra House 3000 itself was voiced by Pierce Brosnan. Yes. No. Okay, so now we're on to the next clue. If you get it from this, you'd get two points. The AI in this episode also uses the talents of voice actors Matthew Perry and Dan Castellaneta. Now that's that's telling. 
Is this Futurama? No. But you're not far oh. off. <laughs> we come to the final clue, and if you get it from this, you'll get one point. The final clue is Ultra House 3000 was situated at 742 Evergreen Terrace, Springfield, USA. The Simpsons. The Simpsons is correct. <laughs> so you get one point. That's the system that we're using. We have uh, a, an overall question and then a series of clues, and it gets easier the more of the clues you have. Yes. So now we come on to question two, which is name the ship. The ship's AI pretended to be taken over by a more aggressive version of the AI software named Queeg. If you can name the ship, this is a TV series, if you can name the ship from that clue, you get five points. No. Okay, the next clue for three points. The ship was occupied by the following. Non-organic life form, non-human life form, non-physical life form, and human occupants. Is this Andromeda? No. Okay. Come to the next clue, which is good for two points. The AI was played by actor Norman Lovett and in later series by Hattie Hayrich. Yeah, not getting that one. Okay. And the last clue, and if you get it from this, you get one point. The books and TV series were written by Doug Naylor and Rob Grant. No, I don't have anything on that. Okay, I'll give you a final clue. Uh, maybe I'll give you a half a point. It's a, <laughs> Brit a British comedy science fiction series. Yeah, I'm drawing a complete blank on this. Ah, Red Dwarf is the answer. Do you know? I Red have Dwarf? never seen. Yeah, ah. I've, I know of it, <laughs> yeah. but I've never seen it. Okay. Well, there's something else for your bucket list. <laughs> so I'm, I'm afraid for that one you get zero points. Question three, name the film. The main AI in this film is left alone on Earth following a man-made global ecological disaster, leaving the Earth barren of organic life. Wally? Correct. Five points. The other clues would have been mankind has fled aboard spacecraft in a hope to find an alternative planet or to wait until the Earth is inhabitable again. The next clue would have been a second AI named Eve is sent from the spacecraft in search of organic plant life on Earth. And the final clue would have been the film was made by Pixar. Yep, I do know my Pixar movies. Very good, very good. <laughs> Question four. Name the film. This adapted film is set in Connecticut, USA. If you get it from that, you get five points. Connecticut. No. Okay. For three points, then, the next clue. Quote from the film. Why? Because we can. We found a way of doing it, and it's just perfect. Perfect for us, and perfect for you. Is this the Stepford Wives? It is the Stepford Wives. Well done. Three points. <laughs> The next clues you would have had would, would have been the original novel was written by Ira Levin in 1972, and the final clue would have been all the AIs are white suburban women. And then the last one is another name the film. The AI in this film is a semi-organic, semi-robotic biped. Narrows it down Boy. a bit. 
Yeah, it narrows it down a bit. <laughs> you know, just because we were talking about our favorite films, I'm going to pick your favorite film. Is this The Terminator? No, but it could have been. Okay. I suppose. Uh, the next clue for three points. The AI software and hardware was developed by the ubiquitous Omni Consumer Products. This is Robocop. It is Robocop. So you get three points for that one. Uh, The remaining clues for that would have been the AI has three main laws and a fourth classified rule, none of which can be breached. And the final clue would have been the AI is a member of the Detroit police force. So there we go. So let me now tot up your points. So congratulations, Colin. You've got 12 points. Yeah. Out of a possible 25 But here's the big reveal. I did this quiz earlier under test conditions. You've scored 12 points and I scored seven. (laughs) So I hang my head in shame. I'm going to give back my PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Shamefully, I only got seven out of 25, so it's not very good. Okay, so thanks once again to Andy Parry for that quiz. And if you, dear listener, would care to send us a quiz yourself, it would save us a bit of work. (laughs) So if you'd like to send us a quiz, um, you know where to find us. We're on 101sf.blogspot.com and you can also find us on Facebook. So we come to our... Final section, which, as always, is looking at past, present and future science fiction, our recommendations. I've got a past item, which actually was inspired by uh, something that came up, I think, in the last episode. Uh, I went looking for uh, either interviews or speeches given by the uh, pulp science fiction writer Lee Brackett, who is also known as the screenwriter for The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what it was is, Colin, I think you you mentioned her by name, and I think you called her Lay Bracket. Yes, I mispronounced her name. Mm. But I've heard other people say Lay Bracket, and I've always said Lee Bracket. So that's how I, I went down this rabbit hole. I was trying to find somewhere where she says her own name, and I couldn't find it. But I found some... Uh, one of them is a, a speech where she's introduced by Tony Boucher, who was the editor of one of the big science fiction magazines in the 50s. I think it was fantasy and science fiction. And he introduces her as Lee Brackett, and she's sitting right next to him. So, you know, if if he'd pronounced it wrong, I think she would have nudged him in the ribs or something. Um, So that's what started me off on that. But I found two two pieces. One is an interview and one is a, a, a speech that she gave. So I found those quite interesting. So I'll put links to those on our blog. Uh, Do you have any past items? I do. I subscribe to some email newsletters that tell you about discount Mm ebooks. And there was a John Varley ebook that came up called Red Thunder about a couple of, you know, young men that go to Mars. And so I picked it up and I read it and it is really pretty enjoyable. Mm -hmm. I liked it. I'm sure the book is still available, whether it's available at the, you know, $1.99 discount price, I don't know or not. Okay. I've got another past item. In my many decades on this planet, I've somehow never read a a book called Children of the Atom by Wilma H. Shiras. It's a a fix-up novel from 1953, and it's about children who develop superpowers. 
Now, that was a sort of a big running theme in the 1950s for some reason. There was, <laughs> uh, there's a, a Theodore Sturgeon book called More Than Human, which is sort yep. of along those lines. There's a John Wyndham book, which is uh, The Chrysalids. And there were various others as well, whose titles escape me at the moment. But I looked up the author. Also, the the first name of the author, Wilma Shiras, it's Wilmar, W-I-L-M-A-R. And to look at the name, I'd never seen that as a name before. To look at the name, I'd assume that was an American man. But I realised when I looked the person up, it's a woman, it's Wilma, like, you know, Wilma Flintstone. But it's not oh. spelt the same as Wilma Flintstone. It's Wilmar with an R on the end. And you don't get many female science fiction writers in the 1950s. So I had to start reading it. So I've started reading it and it's quite good so far. Not very far through it. But anyway, if you've never read it, have a look at that one. Children of the Atom. Yeah. I want to say that's a phrase that was used in conjunction with the uh, Marvel X-Men. Yes, it was. It was indeed, but as far as I know, there's no connection. Or if there is a connection, it's a coincidental one. Uh, I have some present items. Okay. Uh, you know, a, a big part of science fiction, especially for popular culture, is filmmaking. And the uh, the Portland-based stop-motion film studio Leica is holding an exhibit at the Seattle Museum of Popular Culture, where you can go see uh, clay figures and... Uh, frameworks and props from all five Leica movies. Have you been? Uh, I will have been after next Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a present item, which is, I've well, I've done this one before, but uh, I'm actually watching Picard season three. You know, I, 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 I blow very hot and cold about Star Trek Picard. But so far, I've only seen episode one and it's okay. It's not terrible. It's not great but it's okay. It's nice to see the old TNG crew, Next Generation crew. Um, we haven't seen them all yet in episode one, but there's a couple that are in there. And uh, I'm still hearing good things from people who've seen more episodes than I have. I'm trying to ration myself to one a week. Yeah. I mean, maybe watching it the instead of the binge method, the old original 8090s Star Trek TNG method, where you only got one a week and had to anticipate and think about yeah. Uh, I have one other present item. Mm -hmm. The book Fairy Tale by Stephen King has a... Uh, I've only read about the first third of this book, but it has an extremely strong Bradbury influence in it. Oh. So I will I will continue reading and see if that holds true. Um, if you, if uh, people are familiar with the Dark Tower trilogy, the movie, the book Wizard in Glass is almost a retelling or reimagining of A Wizard in Oz. Right. So it'll be interesting to see the Bradbury come out of this and see how it works. Mm. Um, I have one future item, which is... I, I don't know if we've discussed this before. It sounded familiar when I read about it. So forgive me if we've already mentioned this one. Um, Silo, a TV series from Apple TV. Are you familiar with this one? Yes. Looking forward to it a lot. Right. Based on the novel Wool by Hugh Howey, um, and apparently filmed here in the UK. Could be good, but it's not released yet. I think it comes out in May. Um, but it sounds like it's going to be good stuff. So fingers crossed. Of course, all sorts of things sound like they're going to be good and turn out to be terrible. But uh, I'm hoping this will be a decent one. It's interesting that they've 
changed the title. So obviously wool didn't sound a very enticing title for a series. <laughs> so they called it Silo. I gather is, is is wool the first of a series called the Silo series? Is that, is that is. why they've done it? Yeah. 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 So there's the original series. There's a a prequel series. And then there's the final few books. And then there's some other short stories that have come about uh, that also tie in and, and flesh out things a little bit more. Right. Do you have any futures? Uh, you know, I had that one because I'm oh. very excited for that. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, because it's Apple TV, I don't, I personally don't want to see something like foundation. I'd like to see them adapt the actual content of the book rather than just the characters. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the other thing I'm personally looking forward to in the future is April 1st, when the new Brandon Sanderson release from 2023 <laughs> comes out. <laughs> do you have April Fool's Day in the US? We do. <laughs> I'm just hoping that Brandon Sanderson isn't, uh... <laughs> isn't pulling a, an April Fool's gag on all his supporters. <laughs> oh, that would be that would be tragic. It would. <laughs> okay. Any more? No, uh, that's it. Okay, so I think we're ready to wrap up. We've uh, looked at our favourite movies, and uh, obviously we fully expect our listeners to totally disagree with our choices. So if you have uh, different views on any of these films, do let us know in all the usual places. Um, we've quizzed ourselves with a very complicated quiz, uh, which I found extremely tough, uh, but Colin um, nailed <laughs> with a much higher <laughs> score than me. <laughs> so thanks for listening, folks. We're Phil Nichols and Colin Kusky. Our theme tune is from purpleplanet.com. Check out our show notes at 101sf.blogspot.com, where you can also leave us a comment or a, a tip in the tip jar. And don't forget to give us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Mm -hmm.